we're beginning a new series called Breathing Room. I don't know about you, uh, Christmas is a very busy time of year for us. It's uh, a little too busy, and every year when it comes to Thanksgiving, we're always like, okay, we're going to slow down this year. And last year was like one of the busiest years we've ever had as a family. I uh, felt like we pushed to the brink of busyness at different times during the year. And so we were busy at the holidays. It was a different kind of busy. It was a good, uh, like, nice busy during December. And then on the 19th, we took a flight to go see our family. And within hours of being down there, the tiniest in our family uh, started throwing up. Owen always seems to be the first to get sick. And so we get to my mom's for a visit, and, bleh, you know, he's getting sick. And then... It lasts like six hours, and then we get a day of a break, and then Noah and Natalie start getting sick. And like, I'm praying like I have never prayed before. God, please don't let me get the stomach bug. Like, they're all very gracious and graceful when they're sick, not me. I'm a bad patient. I'm terrible when I'm sick. I'm annoying, and I'm helpless, and I just want to crawl into a recliner and be left alone. And so I did not get the stomach bug. It felt like a Christmas miracle. Um, But then, like, on Christmas Eve, my eyelids started feeling really heavy. Like, sinus was setting in. And so for the next 10 days, like, I battled a sinus infection. It won. Uh, Two of the days, I slept for 18 hours. And I felt like all of this was God's way of saying, okay, great. You had a busy year. Awesome. Slow down. You're going to have to slow down. You're going to have to do things differently. And it's nice at Christmas. Like, by the time we get to our families... If sickness doesn't set in, we're mostly done with our spending, we're mostly done with our going, we're done working, uh, and we get to reflect on the year with sniffles and shortness of breath and all of that. But we did get to slow down. And here was the lesson, one big lesson for me at the end of last year and as we transition into this year. I am not indestructible. Like, I live at times, like I think... I have an unlimited battery, but the older I get, the more I remember um, I am not indestructible. Tom Brady is three months older than me. Uh, When I watch pro sports, like there's just a handful of guys who are still older than me playing professional sports, and most of them, with the exception of Tom Brady, aren't very good. Like, they're not very good anymore. Like, I am not as young and prime of my life as I thought I was. And so I can't go at the same pace that I used to go. I can't, I just can't do the same stuff anymore. And God is teaching me that I'm not indestructible and that I do have limits the older I get. And that is one of the most humbling, frustrating things that God uh, would have me learn um, each month and then each year. So I want to ask you, what about you? For, ninth, for 2019, do you hope 2019 for you will be busier? Like, are you hoping this year will be busier than it was last year? Are you hoping this year that you will get more in debt than you were in debt last year? Um, I hate debt. I remember one time our credit card uh, reached that sort of threshold that I, that where like I panicked. I don't know if you have a number like that on your credit card that happened to me once and I needed to get like the little um, school lunch bag because I panicked so bad like I was like babe I gotta get a seat. The debt had reached that limit like I don't want to be more in debt at the end of this year than I was at the end of last year. Uh, I don't want to be I don't want my life to be more cluttered. I don't want to be more weighed down by things than I was and I don't want to be more spread thin. And I'm pretty sure you don't either. I'm pretty sure when we make our resolutions, we don't think, 
God, how can my life become crazier and more chaotic and less healthy than it was last year? But how do we get there? So we're going to do a series called Breathing Room. And today we're going to talk about creating margin in our lives. Like <coughs> creating margin as an act of faith. It's really easy to say, well, I've got my church life and I've got my regular life. And in my church life, I read the Bible and I try to be a good person and I pray and do all these things, go to church and be religious. And then in my regular life, I've got all this other stuff. But listen, there, in, in God's kingdom, in the Bible, in Jesus' eyes, there's no um, separation of those. There's no difference. Like I don't have a church self or a religious self and then a Monday through Saturday self. And that's not the way that God set everything up. And so uh, when we try to create breathing room in our life or we set a resolution or we want to be different or have different relationships, that is an act of faith. Creating margin is an act of faith. It can be just as worshipful as sitting here, reading the Bible, taking notes and responding. It's all an act of faith. And so we want to talk about creating margin as an act of faith. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about creating margin in our finances. We're going to talk about money. It's not a tithing sermon. I promise you, I'm not going to come in here and ask you to give money to a church or to God or make you feel bad or anything like that. I've sat where you've sat for plenty of guilt trip sermons. That's not it. But I do want us to talk about creating margin in your money. But next week, we're going to talk about time. creating margin in our schedules. How many of you would say, man, I am too busy if I'm not careful. I can be too busy. Yep, Mark, thanks. Oh, yep, a couple of us. Yep. Me, man, I have to create margin. So we're going to talk about creating margin in our time. And on the 27th, the message will be called Choosing to Cheat, Finding Margin in Our Relationships. And that doesn't mean going and having an affair. It means cheating relationships that are less important so that the most important relationships get the most amount of our energy and affection. So, But today we're going to talk about creating margin as an act of faith. Here we go. Uh, Matthew 6. We're just going to look at four verses uh, from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, beginning in verse 31. Now, Jesus is talking on the side of a mountain, and a pretty good crowd has gathered to hear him, starting with the disciples, and he's talking with people who are basically primarily poor, who worry a lot about their food, who worry a lot about what they're going to drink, or they're going to have clean water, and what they're going to wear, just basic necessities of life. And we're going to pick up at the end of a passage where he's talking about little birds, not even like nice, expensive birds, but like cheap little birds that even Petco wouldn't sell. And he's talking about that. I mean, he's talking about wildflowers. The King James translates the flower that he's talking about as lilies. It's not lilies. Lilies are nice. Uh, When I think of lilies, they're fairly expensive, nice flowers. Jesus isn't talking about that. Jesus is talking about wildflowers that just pop up in a field that may be pretty, but there wasn't any strategy in their planting. And he's talking about how God dresses those wildflowers and how he feeds those sparrows, those birds. And then he goes on in 31, he says this. Therefore, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the Gentiles or for the pagans or for the people who don't believe in and follow God, seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. 
man, there's so much good in that. Like, I want us to kind of go through uh, and look at a couple of the first two verses, and then we'll talk about the last two at the end. And really, we're going to have three points today. If you like to take notes, I'm actually going to put them up here. There's going to be three points that are going to lead to one really big idea. And the really big idea, the print will be a little bigger on there. And so I'll even make that point. But here's the first one. Here's the first thing that Jesus is talking about. <clears throat> we are limited beings with limited resources. We're limited beings with limited resources. He says, therefore, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Jesus understands that we will not always have everything. Man, we just don't always have everything. Uh, We are limited people and we have limited resources. We have limited time. We have limits to our money. We have limits on our relationships that we can sustain and the depths of the relationships that we have. We have limited abilities. We have limited uh, resources. All of us have different limits, but none of us is limitless. Have you ever met a high-capacity person? I had a buddy named Walt Tanner. Walt's a pastor of a little, in a little community in South Carolina. And Walt would wake up at 3 a.m. every day, and he would go to the gym, and he would work out, and then he would come back at like 4.15, and then he would pray and read the Bible, and, uh, and then he would like start writing notes at like 5 a.m. or whatever his routine was. And so by the time I would wake up at like 6.30, Walt would be three and a half hours into his day. And I would go to a meeting of a bunch of pastors and he would just have everything together. He'd be like, oh, you guys, it's eight o'clock. I'm, you know, he's ready for a nap and lunch like at 8 a.m. And like, I'm just getting going. Like my hair is still wet from the shower. The truth is, Both Walt and I had limits. Like, if we can think of this table as our capacity, Walt may have had a greater capacity, but he was not limitless. There would be times where he would crash out. There are times for me that I'll crash out. I don't have as much energy as Walt. But everybody has a boundary. We all have limits where it's like, okay, that's as far as I can go. That's as far as our money can go. That's as much time as I have. That's all the energy I have. I got, at the end of 2018, I lived because of busyness out on the edge of where my energy would let me live. And then I sort of just chose to push past that and, and plopped off the end. And God, as a gift to me, gave me amazing sickness to just sit in a recliner and get back over here and remember that I have limits, that I am not capable of doing everything all the time, go, go, go. We all have limits. And when we regularly or constantly uh, live at the edge of our limits, a few things happen. One, we get stressed. How many of you, when you get to the edge of your finances, get incredibly stressed? Like, does it stress some of you out? Man, it stresses me out. Um, When we get to the edge of what we have, that's where I become a jerk. The stupidest I ever acted toward my wife was one time we were at the edge of our finances. And she went to a yard sale and spent like $4. And came home and she had like 30 items for $4. Like, I mean, literally filled the car with all this stuff that someone else was throwing away. And I couldn't see all the things that she was going to do with this new stuff. All I could see was that $4 had walked away when we were at the edge. 
and I was stressed. And because I was living, living at the edge, I acted like a jerk. And later had to repent and say, babe, I was a jerk. I am sorry. I was wrong. I did not love you as Jesus loves you. When we live on the edge constantly, it creates stress. It creates a communication breakdown. Man, when we live out here, communication patterns seem to just short circuit themselves. And we don't communicate. We're thinking the worst and we're not in a good way. Uh, and, um, and so living at the edge creates communication breakdown. It creates rush and anxiety. It creates rush. Oh, I don't have time. I've got to hurry. I've got to run from this thing. Oh, I've got, I don't have the resources. Man, I've got to be hustling. I've got to make more money. And, and we become rushed. We become anxious. And then here are some really dangerous things that happen. It creates um, it, what living on the edge will make temptation more tempting. We have a sister-in-law who has struggled with addiction. And one of the things that she says when she is tempted to use is she uses that acronym HALT. She has to figure out, am I, right now, am I uh, hungry, angry, lonely, or tired? Because hunger, anger, loneliness, and exhaustion will bring her to the edge and tempt her to go and use drugs. When we live at the edge of our limits, temptation that would normally not be that tempting becomes very tempting. And so we're limited. We're limited. Another thing it does, our priorities and convictions will become more easily forgotten, abandoned, rationalized, or compromised. And then finally, and I'll explain this one a little bit more in a moment. When we are living at the edge of our resources and our abilities and living uh, with little breathing room, we begin to live outside in rather than inside out. And I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. And I think it's really, really important. But Jesus said that God knows we have limits. Jesus also says it's a pagan trait to seek the edge, um, to seek edge things as the most important things. He says in, uh, in verse 32, for Gentiles, for pagans, seek after all those things. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? Uh, but your heavenly father knows that you need all of those things. It's a pagan trait to live on the edge constantly. It shows it's living as... Um, it's, a, it's living as a practical atheist. We may say there's a God. We may say we follow Jesus. But when we constantly are living at the edge and, and running with no breathing room, we're living as if God doesn't exist, and if, as if he doesn't love us and doesn't have a plan for us. We're limited beings with limited resources. It's God forgetfulness to always live over here on the edge and think, oh, well, I'm going to continue to have everything that I always need. It's, it's God forgetfulness to live over there for a Christian. But man, it's hard. It's hard, um, but we have to live inside limits. And I want to tell you a couple reasons why I think it's really hard. What conspires against us living at the center and not living um, with a ton of breathing room. One thing that conspires against us is like external cultural forces. Um, if, you, if you and I don't live our life and figure out what, where we prioritize things here, other people will always have an opinion about how you should live your life. 
I see in Charlestown, because there's such a, because it's a very small neighborhood, and you can kind of know people. The other day, I walked down the street to see Renee, and I saw like three or four friends just within a hundred yard thing. Because that's one of the traits of Charlestown, it's easy to know everybody and all of that stuff. It becomes like peer pressure can become a very real thing in this neighborhood. Uh, and I think because we live in a social media world too, there's a lot of peer pressure in general on people to, man, you got to dress a certain way. Your kids have to go to this certain school. You have to have this certain job. You have to have all of these things. And there becomes this, like there comes this line of hoops that we have to jump through to try to make everybody else happy if we're not careful. There's all this external pressure. And we begin to live away from the center because we've got to do like everybody else. When we lived in the South, there was a very clear list of hoops that people would have to jump through. Here's what it was. Um, when in the South, you got married a lot younger than you do tend to get married in New England. Uh, it was not uncommon to see somebody who's like 20, 21 get married. I feel like when I see a 20, 21-year-old here, I'm looking at a child. No offense. Um, but, man, you, I, we would see people who are 20, 21 get married all the time in the South, and they didn't have a job and, like, a career, uh, and they had no plan. I've got a nephew who I think is... 18 or 19 and he's engaged I'm like dude you work and fast food like how are you going what is the plan you and your fiance both work in fast food and there's nothing wrong with that but it's almost like there's been this cultural hoop that you've got to jump through of man you got a girlfriend you love her get engaged uh, it doesn't matter if you're young and don't have a plan the next hoop is you got to get married then the next hoop, and this one's the amazing one, and I think this one really pushes young people to the edge quickly, is this idea that they got to get a house. And man, we got to buy a house quick. And I would see couples who are 23, 24 years old buying 2,000, 2,500, 3,000 square foot houses because that's what their friends did. It was like, dude, our parents and our grandparents worked a generation to buy a house like this. And you've got this thing immediately and you're 23. How are you paying for all this? I mean, they've got to have certain cars and they've got to have kids. And man, they would have kids. We would, I mean, we'd get these couples back from their honeymoons and they'd want to, and, and they'd want to be pregnant. And it was like, what are you doing? Like, you don't even know this person. And now you want to be pregnant and have a baby and then they want to get season tickets to Clemson games and then they want to go on all these trips and then they want to have more kids and let me tell you what the last hoop was and this was the hoop that nobody ever wanted to talk about they ended up in my office needing counseling that was where our, all of those hoops of trying to live by everybody's expectations externally cultural pressures the last hoop inevitably was that I would end up giving them a ton of free counseling but there's external pressure that we all feel from family and from friends and from culture and social media and everything else. The other thing that comes at us is an internal fear. And I think this one can sometimes be louder than the external one. Um, will God really provide for me? What are other people going to think of me? Am I enough? Will God really provide for me becomes financially one of the things that gets us living out on the edge faster than anything else. But in this passage, Jesus says, hey, look, watch God. He provides for sparrows and he dresses 
wildflowers and he's going to take care of you. When we begin to internally wonder if God's going to be there or if we're enough or if God has a plan or what are people going to think of me, we begin to live out on the edge in a way that God did not intend for us to. We can let the external push us. We can let the internal drive us or we can let the eternal guide us as we trust God and depend on him. We can let the external begin to push us. But being pushed is being bullied. And when we're letting external things push us around, we're letting uh, cultural pressures or people pressures or family pressures bully us. We can let the internal drive us. But again, when we're being driven, being driven is like the idea of cattle. Cattle gets driven. But we're not cattle. We're the children of God. And so when we say that internally, internally God is going to lead me from an eternal perspective, then God, Jesus says, will guide us as we trust him and depend on him. Psalm 62 Verses 5 through 7 say this. They say, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from God. God only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I will not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding in all your ways Acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. We can let the external push us. We can let the internal drive us or we can let the eternal guide us. The second thing I want us to see, uh, we are limited beings with limited resources. Second, Renee, if you'll go to that next one for me. God is both perfectly limitless and perfectly loving. Now, this is important because we all have edges. God has no edges. There are no edges to God's love for you and I, and there are no edges to God's resources. Jesus calls him our heavenly father very intentionally in this verse. He's heavenly. He's eternal. The Bible says that God has all the power, all the knowledge. He can be everywhere, and he has everything he needs. He's heavenly. He's beyond us, but he is our father. And I'll tell you the truth. As a guy who grew up with a, without a dad, this was the most confusing name for God in all the Bible. When, the, when, the Bible, when Jesus talks about God as Father for years, that just went right over me. It made no sense. What does that even mean? God's a Father. My dad wasn't there. What is, I had no... It, was, it may have well been spoken in Cantonese Chinese. It didn't make any sense to me when people called God a Father. Until... I held my boys at the hospital. And I understood there was nothing that I would not do for them within my power. I would lay down my life for those little jokers. My heart, had, my heart grew three sizes that day. I love those little boys. I can still remember like smelling those little baby temples once they cleaned them up to me. If heaven doesn't smell like the temples of a newborn baby, then we are being ripped off. And what it smells like is the best smell in the universe. And I thought I love these boys and would do anything, even lay down my life for them. And that is God. That is our heavenly father. God is both perfectly limitless and perfectly loving. 
living at the center and, um, and being content is not a statement about being a minimalist or having boundaries. It's a statement of trusting God, a belief that he is perfectly limitless and perfectly loving and that he cares for us. God is limitless and loving and he cares for you. If you had lived at the edges with your finances for a year, I want to tell you there's stress and anxiety and frustration out here. But right here with God is perfect love and no limit. He's right here and he has the best for us. Verse 32 says the Gentiles, pagan people, worry and seek after all that stuff. But your heavenly father knows you need all those things. And then the third thing I want to share with you is this. Renee, if you'll pull up the last one. Oh, the next one, excuse me. We create margin at the edges by clarifying what's at the center. You get margin on the edges, not by focusing out here and trying to offload all this stuff, but by clarifying what's at the center. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. What does that mean? Seek to seek God, seek him relationally, love the things God loves, hate the, thing God, hate the things God hates, and tether yourself to God. It doesn't mean that we need to try to become more religious. God doesn't need us to be more religious in 2019. He doesn't. But he does want us to love what he loves, hate what he hates, and seek him. There's a really successful church in um, Chicago, Illinois, that was kind of the gold standard for about 25 years for reaching their community. In fact, they started a, a brand of church and a brand of church service that was so good that literally hundreds, if not thousands of other churches across America and the world began to model their services after them. They were called seeker services. And this church was, is called Willow Creek Community Church in Illinois. And after 25 years of reaching thousands and thousands and thousands of people, they wanted to do a study to figure out what they had done well and what they had not done well. And they came out with a very honest book that um, it's probably one of the most honest books I've ever seen church people write. And in the book, they basically came out and said, we screwed up. We reached hundreds and thousands of people and we screwed this thing up. We created church attenders and created a church culture, but we didn't really transform our community and people's lives Monday through Saturday really weren't that much different. And you know what they said at the end of it? They said, uh, they, they begin at the, they, at the end of the book, they say, here are some things we're going to begin to do differently as a church. And one of them, they said, was the people who thrived in their relationship with God were not the most faithful church attenders. The people who thrived in their relationship with God were the people who knew how to handle the Bible and read it Monday through Sunday on their own. So if we were to say, hey, Christ Church Charlestown, what's one of the pastor's goals for the year? One of my goals is not to have a ton more people coming on Sunday. If that happens, that's great. I think healthy bodies grow. So I think as long as we continue to love God, love each other, and love our community, people will come. I think the most important thing this year is that whether you have been a Christian for decades or a year or two or maybe even aren't, I think learning to understand the Bible and just connect with God in it in small chunks um, day after day is the most important thing. And we want to 
exert a lot of energy at the beginning of this year teaching you how to do that and do it well. We create margin at the edges, breathing room, by clarifying what's at the center, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We're called to be surrendered. God in us, God working on us, God for us, and God through us, not us just doing stuff for God. At my center of my life are four things, and here they are. These are the most important things, and they really dictate what happens on the edges. Uh, Jesus is the most important thing in my life. My kids will say all the time, Dad, do you love us the most? I'll say, no, I don't love you the most. You love mom the most. Nope, I don't love the mom the most. I love Jesus the most. And then I love mom the next most. And then I love you guys the third most. And you're a tie. And after that is like the kingdom of God, church, job, uh, extended family, a bunch of other stuff. But other stuff, family, kingdom of God, or church stuff, is that's even out here for me. And it's not going to determine what's the most important at the center. So we made a commitment years ago, that uh, a few years ago, that we wouldn't be out more than one night a week individually doing stuff. So like if Natalie has a PTA meeting on Tuesday, I'll do one meeting during the week that may be in the evening. But other than that, we're not going to be out four nights a week. We could have other meetings and plan stuff and work. That sounds terrible to me. Your lives are busy. You don't need that. But ultimately, my kids are not going to look at me in 20 years and say, Boy, my dad pastored a big church. I really respect him. What my boys are going to remember is every night I prayed for them and prayed with them when they went to bed. My kids aren't going to look at me and say, man, a lot of people in the community respect my dad, so I respect him. My kids are going to say, my dad helped me do my homework, and he was there, and he taught me how to be a man who loved God, and I respect him. If I do those things well... All the other stuff will always take care of itself. And the same is true for you. The same is true for you. We've got to figure out what's at the center and then live outwardly, not let the outward stuff, the peripheral stuff, be the most important. That's what it means to live inside out. We've got to live from the inside, prioritizing what's most important. And if you're a high schooler or a college student, man, this is really critical for you. Super critical because your life is going to drastically change in the years to come. And if you can't prioritize and say, you know what, these are the things that are going to be the most important, you'll compromise the quickest. And man, I promise you that um, I was a terrible student in elementary school, a decent student in middle school. I was pretty good by high school. By the time I got to college, I was killing it. I became a great student. Like, Nat thinks I love school and would go, like, would go to school for a living. That's not quite true, but it's pretty close. But it took me a long time to get there, and it came down to prioritizing at age 15 that God was going to be the most important thing. And seeking first his kingdom was going to be a big deal. And that began to change the way that I would live. I want to show you something real quick. We have a lot of ornaments at our house and a lot of Christmas decorations. Um, I, I've talked about my wife and how she loves Christmas and all that, like, the, when we go on a trip, the souvenir we buy is the Christmas ornaments. We have a lot. We have a lot of Christmas ornaments. And we have a lot of decorations, too. We've got, you know, like pillows. Um, we've got a lot of 
stockings and stuff. This is one of my favorite decorations. Uh, when they were little, we started cutting out the boys' uh, hands, and we would put it, and this is our tree skirt, and so that's important. Uh, and I just put glitter all over the floor. But none are as important as Ted Williams. This is Ted Williams, the splendid splinter, the greatest hitter of all time. He is the most important ornament to me. Now, Natalie has an ornament uh, that's the ultrasound picture of our boys. That's important to her. But Ted, Ted is the important one to me. Every year, we, when we get out these bins, man, I dig down and try to find Ted. And Ted gets the priority spot on the tree. All ornaments must be placed around Ted Williams. And if we have to sacrifice a decoration or something at the end, as long as Ted gets in the box, all is well. But if Ted is going to get squeezed or crushed or something, we've got to rearrange. Ted Williams, to me, is the most important ornament in all of my bins. And so everything has to be, has to fit around him. Let me ask you, what is the Ted Williams ornament of your heart? What's the one or two things that you say, everything else has to fit around these things, these priorities, these relationships, these values. See, the way you get breathing room is you say, what's the most important? And then everything else has to be built around that. And if it's not room for everything else, then all the other stuff just has to go. It just has to go. Because only a few things can be the most important in our heart. And when we clarify um, what's most critical, then it makes this other last 10% less relevant. When we know what's the most important, I, I don't even care about this pillow. I feel like I, my life is full of little pillows like this. If this pillow didn't make it into a bin, that would be just fine with me. When we clarify, but Ted... Ted is important. When we clarify what's most important, then this can be here, but if there's not room for that, that can go. And it's the same financially and with scheduling and with relationships and everything else. Everything else, the last 10% becomes less relevant. It becomes less intimidating because it's seen in its proper perspective. Making these other 10% people out here happy is less important because I see what's the most important and I see it in its right perspective. And then it becomes a way we expect to see God provide. See, when we've clarified that God is the most important thing and we're going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all this other stuff Jesus promises will be added to me as well, be added to you as well, when I'm confident in that, then watching God provide for this marginal stuff becomes an exercise in faith, a great adventure. A great adventure. Um, in 2008, we moved to Greenville, South Carolina to start a church. I didn't, um, you know, we raised our salary. And I didn't raise enough money because I was 30 and I didn't know enough people, to be honest. And I remember uh, two days before we moved, Natalie found out she was pregnant with Noah. Boy, that'll really like test your faith. But we had clarified that God, obeying God was going to be the most important thing. We put that at the center. And I remember 
they brought in, you know, they bring in your baby. Then they bring in like the little blanket and they bring in that stuff. And then they bring in the bill. And, um, and I remember them bringing in that bill and they were like, no, you're going to have to pay 40% of this today. And, um, and I thought, oh man, it was like we've been thrust to the edge in that moment right there. How are we going to do this? And I remember going to the ATM and literally was going to withdraw cash to go pay this bill. And our bank account that day, six, or excuse me, seven months after we had moved, was more than it was the day we had moved. And I remember thinking, like, how did that happen? How did we just make more money in seven months when, when our salary literally decreased by 60% over what we made before? And we moved to a more expensive city than we were living in. And here was the lesson I took away that day. When we prioritize what's at the center and we obey and we seek first God, it becomes a great adventure watching God provide for that last 10% because he promises he'll do it. He totally promises that he will do it. And that leads to the last thing, the big idea. Here you go, Renee, if you'll pull this up. What's at stake in all this is not your progress. What's at stake in all this is your peace. I remember that day in the hospital breathing and being like, whew, truly God's got this. Truly, God is looking out for my family. And it wasn't that we had made financial progress. It was that I was experiencing peace with God in that moment. In a way, but it hadn't before. Because I trusted. Because Natalie and I chose to trust and obey over doing what made sense. Andy Stanley says, what's at stake isn't your progress. It's your peace. What's at stake with creating breathing room isn't your progress, it's your peace. When progress is your first concern, you will live at the margins constantly. You will operate out of a sense of fear. When we live with no margin and no breathing room, we will constantly operate out of a sense of fear. And are we going to go over the edge? When progress is primary, we live with the mantra of, I've got this. I've got this. I can do this and not go over the edge. I've got this. When peace, the peace of God, becomes primary, we begin to live at the center. Because we know that's where God is. And we want to be where he is. When peace is primary, we operate out of faith, not out of fear. And when peace and God are primary, we can live saying, God's got this. I don't know how he's going to do it. Well, he's going to do it. I don't know how he's going to do it, but he's going to do it. That uh, last Sunday, December 16th, when we met uh, last time, we took a photo together at the end. There were 47 of us here that day. And I didn't post that photo on social media um, for a lot of different reasons. But I did send it to a couple of friends. And I said, man, look what God has done this year. Look what God has done. They were like, dude, how did all those people show up? I said, honestly... These are just the people who come to our church. They just all happened to show up on one day. It was freaky how everybody came on one day. I guess if I say you get two weeks off, uh, then everybody will show up on that one week. So (coughs) everybody came. And it was so cool. I've looked at that photo over and over in the last three weeks and just remembered that, man, God told us to do this. And he will do it. If we seek first his kingdom, he adds the other stuff. 
And we get to live saying, what is God going to do? God's got this. Not we've got this, but God's got this. So that leads to the last question. Here we go. We'll, we'll close in prayer with this. Where in your life do you need breathing room? Where in your life do you need more margin than you currently have? Do you need more margin in your time? Do you need more margin in your relationships? Do you need more margin in your finances? Do you need more margin in some of your abilities? Where do you need more breathing room? God would have us come away from the margins clarify what we're seeking first, and then get breathing room. I think sometimes about being old, um, my, my genetics don't have me living for a real long time. Like, I don't invest in a bunch of retirement. It's just better for us to invest in uh, life insurance for Natalie. That's a better plan than for us to invest a ton in uh, retirement um, my family lives to be about 65, 70, maybe a little older if, if we're lucky. So I feel like I'm on the back nine of life at this point uh, a lot of the time. Uh, Natalie's family, however, just as a parenthesis, lives to be like 100 and something. Her grandmother's 102 and still like killing it, like doing great, like sharp still mentally and can see a little and can hear a little. And, uh, and she's a mess. Uh, so Nat's probably going to live like 50 years without me. And, um, but here's the thing. If, we, if she and I live to be 100, I don't see us sitting on the porch like, and, and in a rocking chair thinking, boy, I wish I would have worked a ton more than I did. Man, I wish, I don't see me saying, I wish that we would have bought more junk to fill our house so that our house would look like everybody else's houses in their social media posts. I don't see us saying at 80, man, I wish we would have had our kids involved in a bunch more stuff more nights of the week. I might be wrong. I just don't, I don't think I'm going to do that. I don't see us thinking, man, if I could have only worked 10 more hours every week, we'd have had a life. I think it's actually the total opposite, and I bet you do too. I think when we're sitting there on those porches as old people, we're going to think, I wish I would have loved God more, walked more trusting with him. I wish I would have, the four or five people on planet Earth who really matter and everybody else can kind of buzz off, like I wish I would have invested in them more. I wish I would have saved more bought less junk. I wish I would have spent my time a little differently. I I think that's what this series is going to be all about. It's like clarifying, putting God at the middle, putting the stuff that matters at the middle, and then settling for less on the edges so that we get the main stuff right. Let me pray for us.